morning. Would you all hold up your copy of God's word with me and repeat our affirmation? This is God's word. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. Has God for its author? Salvation for its end? And truth without any mixture of error for its matter? It is the supreme source of truth for what we believe and how we live. Amen. Um, You can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 22. But I want to open up with this question. I want all of you to do me the favor of, of thinking about this question for just a second and really all throughout the message this morning. But that is this. What is your motive? What is your motive? See, the interesting thing about motive is that really unless you share your motive with others in what you do, only really you and God know your motive. God knows your motive. God is not deceived. God will not be tricked, right? God knows the depths of a person's heart. So he knows your motive in everything. But what is your motive? What's your motive in being here this morning and gathering weekly on a Sunday morning to worship God? What's what's your motive in seeking after God? What is your motive in worship? We're going to look at some people whose motives have really become distorted. And I ask you the same question because I believe that, that all of us, no matter, no matter if we're, we know for a fact that we're saved by the blood of Jesus, we're following after him, or maybe we're questioning things, we all have this flesh that will drive us away with impure motives and help us, well not help us, it will, it will cause us to distort the purpose of coming together. And so I want us to, to focus on this this morning. So starting in verse 13, John chapter 2, it says this. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration, so Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and cattle. He scattered the money changers' coins over the floor, and he turned over their tables. Then going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Then his disciples remembered this prophecy from the scripture, passion for God's house will consume me. But the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you the authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Jesus replied, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. What? They exclaimed. It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you can rebuild it in three days. But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. So last week we saw the first miracle of Jesus. Something done in secret where at the wedding in Cana, Jesus took some water and turned it into wine, keep the party going. And it was secret, right? Only his mother, his disciples, and those who were serving the wine knew about this. He was trying to keep things hush-hush. But then this week, we see Jesus travel to Jerusalem for the Passover festival, and, and he does something extremely public. He makes a very public scene, performs a very public miracle, 
See, I want to help you paint the picture in your minds. I want to help us get an image in our minds, and our imaginations, and, and really understand what's happening in this picture, in this story that we just read, okay? So, so what we got to know is Passover is a festival that the Jews would celebrate each and every year. Every year, they would travel to Jerusalem in order to celebrate and look back at how God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt thousands of years ago. They would come to celebrate as mandated by God. Uh, and in this day, in Jesus' day, the Jewish people were scattered all over. They weren't all in one place, right? And so they would celebrate in Jerusalem. But Jerusalem was under the control of the Roman Empire. And so during this Passover festival, all these Jews who were scattered out everywhere, they would travel days and days to get to Jerusalem and worship together. Now, this is significant because whenever, I remember whenever I got saved, I was like a freshman in college, and I, the Lord just changed everything in my life. And for the first time in my life, I opened up my Bible, and every day I started reading it, right? I started wanting to seek the Lord. I was like, wow, he saved me. I want to know him. And as I read these stories, I remember reading this story, and I remember picturing it in my mind, like Jesus walking into the temple and flipping over some tables and making that little whip out of cord and stuff. And I thought there was probably like 30 people there. I thought he was just like making this little scene with, with just a small number of people. Uh, but Josephus, who's a Jewish historian that kept rat record of, of things going on during this day, uh, he records that during the Passover festival, the population of Jerusalem was usually around two to 300 people, 300,000 people, excuse me. But during this Passover festival, it would swell to more than two million people. Two million people coming into Jerusalem to celebrate God, to worship God, Jews coming to offer sacrifices to God. Every hotel, every room, every campsite that they could pop up a tent would be taken place so that they could celebrate what God has done. Or at least that's what they were supposed to do, right? And, and while all Jews who were there, all million plus of them that were there weren't in the temple at one time, certainly there was thousands upon thousands of people in the temple at one time when Jesus entered it. You see, these Jews who were coming, what they would have to do is two things in order to participate in this celebration, in this festival. First, we saw in the text that there's money changers, right? Uh, so they would have foreign currency. So in the same way, if we were to travel to Europe, we'd have to take our dollars and exchange them for euros so we can go and buy stuff, right? They've got to bring their foreign currency to these money changers, and they've got to exchange it for the Roman currency, Okay, when they did this, well, what you had was these merchants and the priests who were allowing them in the temple basically partnering up and, and taking advantage of these people. Nobody knew what the exchange rate was, so they had freedom to basically just get however much they wanted from these people. And so the priests and these merchants were taking this as a great opportunity each year to really make a lot of money. Okay, so once they exchanged their currency, what they would do is they would then go over to the next booth where there was people selling all sorts of animals that, that would be offered as sacrifices. And so they'd take the currency over and the same deal, they would need to buy a sacrifice if, if their sins were going to be atoned for, if they were going to participate in this religious ritual. And so they'd have to buy these sacrifices and they could charge whatever they wanted. They couldn't just bring with them a sacrifice. And this is another way the priests were kind of corrupt. Because if they tried to travel with their own sacrifice, say they tried to bring their own animal or their own dove or whatever, oftentimes the priests, when they got there after traveling days and days, they would look over this animal and they'd find some spot or blemish on it and say, this isn't worthy of a sacrifice. You got to go buy a new one. So do you see how, how they're taking this place? 
this place where God calls his people to come experience him, this place where people are called to humbly cry out to God, be brought back into right relationship with him, honor him and worship him. They've turned it into a selfish opportunity to make money. So this made Jesus extremely frustrated, so frustrated that he drove the people out with this authority and righteous anger that they've never experienced before. You see, Jesus did this miracle at first at at Cana at the wedding in secret, but now publicly he's making a huge scene. Here's the first truth of three truths I want to look at really quickly this morning. First truth is this, God has the authority to flip over the tables in your life. God can and he will flip over the tables in your life. But do you catch this? Do you catch the authority of Jesus on display? You see, I'm trying to repeat and explain the sheer size and number of the crowd for a reason. Jesus came in with no technology, no megaphone, no nothing, and he just demands everybody, look at me. You've got it all wrong. You've turned my father's house, his house of worship, into a den of thieves, a marketplace, something for selfish gain. Get out. He drives all these thousands and thousands of people out, clearly radiating the power and the authority of God. That's why this is a miracle. This isn't something we often view as a miracle, but this is miraculous. This is something you and I could never imagine doing. Can you picture in your mind, like if you were to go to the Super Bowl, and you even, even if you had a megaphone and you're like, you go up there and you, you're mad about something, you're trying to drive everybody out, get out of here, guys, let's close this whole thing down, you shouldn't be here, blah, blah, blah. What's everyone going to do? They're going to ignore you, they're going to laugh at you, they're going to mock you, a big guy's going to come over, he's going to pick you up, he's going to be like, all right, come on, buddy, let's get out of here, what are you doing, right? Like, it, it wouldn't have taken anything for someone to come up and just grab Jesus and pick him up and take him out, say, chill out. But they sensed and they knew his authority, that he spoke with power that they'd never experienced before. What we need to see this morning is the sheer magnitude of authority that Jesus has, both in this story and in our lives. He will accomplish what he wants to accomplish. Another little thing to help kind of keep painting the picture I just found this interesting. So Rome, because Rome has occupied Jerusalem, right? And so they had this giant tower that that stood next to the temple. And so during these festivals, they would have a garrison of soldiers that was stationed there. In case any rebellion or riot started to take place, they could go in and just start slaughtering everybody, right? They were going to have a grip on the Jewish people. They weren't going to let things get out of hand. And so that's even more amazing that Jesus was able to command this authority, get everybody out without causing a scene or causing a problem to the Romans where they felt threatened. Jesus has authority to do whatever he wants. And Jesus certainly is concerned about the worship of God's people. So much so that he will flip over tables in your life. If that's what he has to do, that's what he's going to do. We love the pictures of Jesus whenever he's giving sight to the blind. Whenever he's taking a person who who hasn't been able to walk their whole life and and he gives them the ability to walk. Or when when he raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. We love those pictures because it's so cool, right? It's so nice of Jesus to do those things. But what we need to see is that same Jesus will drive out the sin in our lives, even if it means causing some pain to us. What we need to see is that he has the authority and this is, this is a hard pill to swallow. This is going to flow into the next point. But God can allow very hard and tough things and things that seem bad to us to happen in our lives. God will allow painful things to happen in our lives. And the second truth I want you all to see in, in regard to this is, is this. God doesn't have to explain himself to us. 
Again, all these things, these are pretty tough truths. This is a hard pill to swallow, but that's the reality of it. God doesn't have to explain himself to you or me whenever he does whatever he pleases. You see, the religious leaders, they say, it says, the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you this authority to do this, then show us a miraculous sign to prove it or something. Jesus, tell us why you're doing it. They always want an explanation. And I mean, we always want to hate on those guys, but can't we relate to that? We don't really need God to explain why he's allowing good things to happen to us when we're feeling comfortable, when everything's going our way. But the second things go bad or start to become a struggle, we demand that God explain himself. God, how could you let this happen in my life? Why would you do this, Lord? And again, God is is the God of all creation. He, he, he doesn't need to come at us every moment with an explanation. In fact, I believe that, that some of the reasons why God doesn't give us an explanation is because he uses these tough times to just simply increase our faith, grow our dependence upon him, and sanctify us so that we can become more and more like Jesus. God will often withhold explanation from us. The question is, are you willing to submit and trust in the midst of that? When, when you don't understand the reason or you don't understand the why, are you willing to see that God is worthy of worship simply because of who he is and not because he's making you prosper? You see, let me use this illustration. I'm married, but let me pretend I'm not. You pretend you're not if you're married. And pretend you're engaged. And the person you're engaged to is like a millionaire in stocks. They got all their money in the stock market. They're doing just excellent. They're making bank. But 10 days out from your wedding, the stock market just crashes. They lose everything. And so you go to that person and you say, listen, I know it's a hard time, but I just don't feel so good about this wedding anymore. I think we need to call it off. Uh, yeah, let's just not do this. How do you think that person would feel? They would be extremely frustrated. They probably want to kill you, Right? You didn't love them because of who they were. You loved them clearly for what they could offer you. But so often, and this is how the world wants to view God, and this is, again, even us as believers, we can, we can fall back into our flesh and begin to view our relationship with God like this. God, I want to follow you when you're giving me whatever I want, when you're, when you're making things easy, when things are comfortable. But God, the second something's a challenge, I think I'm going to go the other way. And that is just not it. You are missing it if that's your view. Do you remember the story of Job? It's one of my favorite stories in scripture. If you, if you don't know the story of Job, I'd encourage you just go read it, all right? Here's what happens, okay? A little summary. Job is righteous in God's sight. Satan does not like Job. He's like, God, the only reason Job loves you is because you're giving him everything. Let me take it from him. He'll curse you, and, and that'll be that. And so God allows Satan to literally destroy everything in Job's life. All his kids die. All his possessions, he's extremely wealthy, are destroyed. What he's left with is he's left on, on a trash heap outside of the town with boils, and his wife tells him to curse God and die. Job says, Lord gives, Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. That's only in the first two chapters. The rest of the book is Job's friends coming, they're traveling from a distant city, and they, they want to comfort Job. They want to get to the bottom of this. Why would God allow something like this to happen to you, Job? So all of basically the... the, con, or the the middle, whatever you want to call it, of Job is just these friends and Job trying to understand why God allowed this to happen. Finally, at the very end, after days and days of trying to figure out and crying out, God, like, like what, I must have done something. What did I do? I, I didn't do anything, Job's saying. What happens is Job is fed up, like many of us get, right? We say, why, God? Why would you allow this to happen? 
And he says, God, I don't understand. I just don't get it. Why? I didn't do anything. And do you remember what happened? God appears in, in a whirlwind. God humbles Job really quick. And if you go and you read the last few chapters, you see what God says. It's amazing stuff. Things like, like, did you set the ocean in its place? Does the thunder and lightning consult you before it crashes? Do you know where the snow is created? Like, do, do you watch the dough and the fawn be, be born? Like, all these things. God is just declaring to Job, I'm God. You're not. I don't have to explain myself to you. Again, that can be a hard pill to swallow. But the third truth that I hope you already saw and I mentioned is this. We worship God simply because of who he is, because he's worthy, not because of what he can give us. There's only one non-created being in existence that is God. He's infinitely wiser than we can imagine, infinitely more powerful than our, our minds can comprehend. And he is fully worthy of our worship. And in addition to that, he's made a way for us to be in right relationship with him. So do you see this? There's reason I'm saying all this. Because do you see why Jesus is mad? This God, who's made a way for his people to worship him and be in relationship with him, have totally neglected this. They've totally just ignored this. They don't realize the opportunity that they have being in relationship with God. This place of worship has become a marketplace. Their motives have turned from, from awe-inspired worship of the one true God into a pursuit of selfish gain at the expense of others. It's all about me. It wasn't about what, uh, who they could experience and gain. It was about what, right? It became about the money, not about God. So again, I want to ask you, what's, what's your motive What's your motive for being here this morning? For, for when you come to church each week, does your heart, is it filled with a desire to come and worship the one true God who's reconciled us to himself through the blood of Jesus Christ? Or has it become more about you? Has it become some selfish gain? Has it become almost like you're a political candidate and, and you're coming trying to network, trying to get votes? Whatever it may be, what's your motive? Because God being God is motive enough. He's worthy of our worship. I'm gonna try to focus real quick before we close on the worshipers, other than the priests and the merchants. We already got them, right? Like Jesus was dogging on them. But I can't help but imagine, again, I'm trying to paint this picture for you guys of what it was like as these people are celebrating the Passover, they're coming in, there's these thousands of people. I can't help but picture it, right? Like you got all these Jews coming in, they're rubbing shoulders, there's like, it, think of a, a super packed marketplace. They're, they're exchanging their currency, okay, I got my currency, I'm gonna go over to this table, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get my animal sacrifice, okay, and I'm gonna turn around, I'm gonna go to the priest, and, and I'm gonna sit here before the priest, and the priest is gonna slaughter this animal, the blood's gonna atone for my sin, he's gonna say his little thing, and then I'm gonna bow, he's gonna bow, and, and I've done my religious duty. I can't help but imagine that it just became the thing that they did. Every year, it's what we do. It lost its meaning. Instead, what, what they should have done is they offered that sacrifice as they gave it to the priest, and they're watching the priest slit this animal's throat and the blood coming everywhere. They, they should have looked at that animal and said, why isn't that me? Why isn't that my blood? That should be me. My sin deserves the wrath of God. My sin deserves death. But God, you've placed my sin on that animal. 
But you see, when we get in the habit of doing things, the danger is our motives get distorted. The danger is the point begins to be forgotten. The danger is we miss out on what God actually has for us. We miss the point. I think this scene echoes a passage. I remember when I was at Bible college, in my Bible interpretation class one day, we, we just looked at Amos chapter 5, verse 21 through 23. First time I had read it, it was so powerful. God's speaking to his people in the Old Testament. And I think the heart of God's people in Jesus' day offering these sacrifices is pretty similar to the heart of the people in this day. And God says to them, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps. They turned the act of repentance, this act of meditating on the work of God to reconcile them to himself, into a meaningless ritual, into, again, just the thing that we do. Instead, what we should do, I fear we do the same thing. What we should do is we should come together, worshiping with all our hearts, recognizing that God has redeemed, restored, reconciled us into fellowship with one another and with himself as almighty God. Jesus from the very beginning knew his purpose as he witnessed those animal sacrifices. Because again, Jesus lived as a Jew. He was a Jew. Every year his parents would bring him to Jerusalem for this festival. He would see the animals being slaughtered. Jesus knows as he sees the blood of these animals, that's going to be me. His purpose, your salvation, his blood, the forgiveness of your sins, his desire that you and I would return through him to true worship and fellowship with the one true God. Christ died to set you free from sin and death, and he rose from the dead so that we could have the hope of eternal fellowship with God. If that doesn't move your heart and make you filled with gratitude and love for Jesus Christ, then you're missing something. Then, then you don't get it. I'm sorry. If that doesn't move you to say, Jesus, what do you want from me today? Where do you want me to go? I'm going to follow after you. Then sin still got a hold of you. You're still enslaved. But when you realize that your salvation was Jesus' mission, that, that he looked at you, it's, what's weird about the gospel, he, he's able to look at all of us individually with equal value. That strikes your heart. And when he does that, that moves us to humble surrender and worship and praise. So I'll close with this, this application. And I've already kind of mentioned this. But the application here is we've missed the point when worship becomes more about us than about the one we worship. Again, I'll ask you one more time, just because I think this is healthy for all of us. I do this myself. As I'm writing this, I, I'm, I'm seeking humbly to analyze my heart before God. What is your motive? What's your motive in being here this morning? What I want to challenge you guys with is as we close and we have this time of response, I think I'm gonna be like the only pastor down here. You don't have to come and you know, I don't have to pray with you, but here's what I do want. In a connecting passage, Jesus, he did this. He went into the temple, he drove everybody out two times. He did it at the beginning of his ministry, we saw in John 2. And the other gospels, they record him doing it at the end of his ministry, right before he goes to be crucified. 
In those passages, he, he talks about, he, he says to them, this is supposed to be a house of prayer. You've turned it into a den of thieves. This place, as we come together, now filled with the Holy Spirit, God says our bodies are the temple of God. That's crazy. We need to be a praying church. We need to be a worshiping church. We need to be a repentant church. So here's what I, I want to ask of you. I want us to all together be in prayer. I want us to all together be in worship. I want you to grab your spouse. I want you to grab your friend. I want you to come down by yourself. Again, I'll be, if you need prayer, I mean, you can ask one of your friends or you can come ask me, but I want us to fill this altar and just say, God, will you speak to our hearts? Will you accept the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ, on my behalf? God, will you use us to make a difference in this world? Because guys, you have the gospel the message of salvation for everybody else out there. And you and I have the call to go and share it. You have the hope. Can we worship? Can we repent? Can we just pray together? Come, let's worship. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much, Lord, that though we are just so constant in our sin, though we continue to fall, though we continue to mess up, though we continue to rebel, Lord, you flip over our tables. You reveal yourself to us. You draw us back to yourself. You renew us and restore us. Lord, I pray that in this place, that as we pray, as we continue praying, as we continue worshiping, Lord, I pray that you would hear our cries, our praises, and that they would bring a smile to your face, that you wouldn't turn your face from us, but God, that you would empower us, that you would make your presence known among us, that you would call us to go where you were calling us to go, that you would give clarity of your mission for us. God, we praise you and we thank you and we pray all these things in your name.